I have in my heart this morning to um, interrupt the series that we have been in the middle of and, and talk a little bit about the founding of our country. So I'd like to start off this morning with reading the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. Prudence indeed will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes. And accordingly, all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer while evils are sufferable than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty to throw off such government and to provide new guards for their future security. Such has been the patient sufferance of these colonies, and such is now the necessity which constrains them to alter their former systems of government. The history of the present King of Great Britain is a history of repeated injuries and usurpations, all having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over these states. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. Then they list 28 different grievances that I won't go through the whole thing. But at the end of the grievances, they pick up again. In every stage of these oppressions, we have petitioned for redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. A prince whose character is thus marked by every act, which may define a tyrant, is unfit to be the ruler of a free people. Nor have we been wanting in attentions to our British brethren. We have warned them from time to time of attempts by their legislature to extend an unwarrantable jurisdiction over us. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here. We have appealed to their native justice and magnanimity. And we have conjured them by the ties of our common kindred to disavow these usurpations which would inevitably interrupt our connections and correspondence. They too have been deaf to the voice of justice and of consanguinity. We must therefore acquiesce in the necessity which denounces our separation and hold them as we would hold the rest of mankind, enemies in war, in peace, friends. 
We, therefore, the representatives of the United States of America, in general Congress, assembled, appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions, do in the name and by authority of the good people of these colonies, solemnly publish and declare that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states, that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown, and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, and that as free and independent states they have full power to levy war, conclude peace, contract alliances, establish commerce, and to do all other acts and things which independent states may of right do. And for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. It is signed by 56 different men. Today, citizens are regularly told about the lesser religious founders, such as Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, and Thomas Paine, but hear nothing about the prominent Christians among the founders. Did you know that 29 of the 56 signers of the Declaration held what are today considered seminary or Bible school degrees? And many others of the signers were bold and outspoken in their personal Christian faith. Significantly, not one of the founding fathers was secular in his orientation. Even Thomas Paine, certainly the least religious of the founders, openly acknowledged God and announced his belief in the personal accountability, in his personal accountability to God. And he also directly advocated teaching creationism in the public school classroom. These are the men that founded our country. I want to read to you from an article that was uh, written in January of 2000 by a man named David Barton. Many of you may know him. He's the president of Wall Builders, um, which is an outstanding organization that's helping to preserve the, the heritage, the, particularly the Christian heritage of our country. He wrote, this year marks 224 years, so it would be 240 years this year, since our founding fathers gave us our national birth certificate. We continue to be the longest ongoing constitutional republic in the history of the world. Blessings such as these are not by chance or accidental. They are blessings of God. On July the 2nd, 1776, Congress voted to approve a complete separation from Great Britain. Two days afterward, July the 4th, the early draft of the Declaration of Independence was signed, albeit by only two individuals at that time, John Hancock, who was President of Congress, and Charles Thompson, Secretary of the Congress. Four days later, on July the 8th, members of Congress took that document and read it aloud from the steps of Independence Hall, proclaiming it to the city of Philadelphia, after which the Liberty Bell was rung. The inscription around the top of that bell, Leviticus 25.10, was most appropriate for the, for the occasion. Proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all the inhabitants thereof. To see the turmoil in other nations, their struggles and multiple revolutions, and yet to see the stability and blessings that we have here in America, we may ask, how has this been achieved? What was the basis of American independence? John Adams said the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence 
with the general principles of Christianity. Perhaps the clearest identification of the spirit of the American Revolution was given by John Adams in a letter to Abigail, his wife, the day after Congress approved the Declaration. He wrote her two letters on that day. The first was short and concise, jubilant that the Declaration had been approved. The second was much longer and more pensive, giving serious consideration to what had been done that day. Adams cautiously noted, this day will be the most memorable epic in the history of America. I am apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great anniversary festival. It is amazing that on that very day they approved the declaration. Adams was already foreseeing that their actions would be celebrated by future generations. Adams contemplated whether it would be proper to hold such celebrations, but then concluded that the day should be commemorated, but in a particular manner and with a specific spirit. As he told Abigail, it ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. John Adams believed that the 4th of July should become a religious holiday, a day when we remembered God's hands in deliverance, and a day of religious activities when we committed ourselves to him in solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. Such was the spirit of the American Revolution as seen through the eyes of those who led it. Evidence even further in the words of John Quincy Adams, one who was deeply involved in the activities of the Revolution. In 1837, when he was 69 years old, he delivered a 4th of July speech at Newburyport, Massachusetts. He began that address with a question. Why is it, friends and fellow citizens, that you are here assembled? Why is it that entering on the 62nd year of our national existence, you have honored me with an invitation to address you? The answer was easy. They had asked him to address them because he was old enough to remember what went on. They wanted an eyewitness to tell them of it. He next asked them, Why is it that next to the birthday of the Savior of the world, your most joyous and most venerated festival returns on this day, the 4th of July? An interesting question. Why is it that in America the 4th of July and Christmas were our two top holidays? Note his answer. Is it not that in the chain of human events, the birthday of the nation is indissolubly linked with the birthday of the Savior? That it forms a leading event in the progress of the gospel dispensation? Is it not that the Declaration of Independence first organized the social compact on the foundation of the Redeemer's mission upon the earth? That it laid the cornerstone of human government upon the first precepts of Christianity? According to John Quincy Adams, Christmas and the 4th of July were intrinsically connected. On the 4th of July, the founders simply took the precepts of Christ, which came into the world through his birth, Christmas, and incorporated those principles into civil government. Have you ever considered what it meant for those 56 men, an eclectic group of ministers, businessmen, teachers, university professors, sailors, captains, and farmers to sign the Declaration of Independence? This was a contract that began with the reasons for the separation from Britain and closed in the final paragraph, stating, and for the support of this declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Dr. Benjamin Rush, the father of American medicine and a signer, recorded that day in his diary. In 1781, he wrote to John Adams, 
Do you recollect the pensive and awful silence which pervaded the house when we were called up, called up one after another to the table of the President of Congress to subscribe to what was believed by many at that time to be our death warrants? The silence and gloom of the morning was interrupted. I well recollect only for a moment by Colonel Harrison of Virginia, who was a big guy, who said to Mr. Jerry, small in stature at the table, I shall have a great advantage over you, Mr. Jerry, when we are all hung for what we are now doing. From the size and weight of my body, I shall die in a few minutes. But from the lightness of your body, you will dance in the air an hour or two before you're dead. This speech procured a transient smile, but it was soon succeeded by the solemnity with which the whole business was conducted. These men took this pledge seriously. Robert Morris of Pennsylvania is an example of the highest level of integrity. He was chosen as the financier of the American Revolution. What an honor, except that there was no bank willing to give any loans to help fund the revolution. It was three years in the Battle of Saratoga before America got any kind of funding at all. After winning that battle, foreign nations like France, Holland, and others decided maybe we weren't such a bad risk and began loaning us money. So where did we get the money for the first three years? Congress at that time could not have obtained a loan of $1,000. Yet Robert Morris effected loans upon his own credit of tens of thousands. In 1781, George Washington conceived the expedition against Cornwallis at Yorktown. He asked Judge Peters of Pennsylvania, What can you do for me? With money, everything. Without it, nothing, he replied, at the same time turning with an anxious look toward Mr. Morris. Let me know the sum you desire, said Mr. Morris, and before noon, Washington's plans and estimates were complete. Robert Morris promised him the amount, and he raised it upon his own responsibility. It has been justly remarked that if it were not demonstrable by official records, posterity would hardly be made to believe that the campaign of 1781, which resulted in the capture of Cornwallis and virtually closed the Revolutionary War, was sustained wholly on the credit of an individual merchant. America couldn't repay him because there was no money. And yet Robert Morris never complained because he had given his word. You see the same thing in the life of John Hart. He was a strong Christian gentleman and speaker of the House of Representatives in New Jersey. He promised to help provide them with guidance and leadership. There were three things that were important in his life, his Savior, his family, and his farm. Because of his signature on the declaration, the British were seeking him and the rest of the signers to execute as traitors. John Hart fled his home after which his farm was ravaged, his timber destroyed, his cattle and stock butchered for the use of the British Army. He did not dare to remain two nights in the same location. After Washington's success at the Battle of Trenton, he finally returned home to find that his wife had died and his children scattered. He lost almost everything that was important to him. But he kept his word. John Hancock, a very wealthy individual, lived in a mansion reflecting his princely fortune, one of the largest in the province of Massachusetts. During the time the American army besieged Boston to rid it of the British, the American officers proposed the entire destruction of the city. By the execution of such a plan, the whole fortune of John Hancock would have been sacrificed. Yet he readily acceded to the measure declaring his willingness to surrender his all whenever his liberties 
whenever the liberties of his country should require it. A man of his word, he demonstrated his integrity. The 16 congressional proclamations for prayer and fasting throughout the revolution were not bland. They contained the acknowledgement of Jesus Christ, the quotings of Romans 14, 17, etc. However, this is not unusual considering the prominent one that many ministers played in the revolution. One such example is John Peter Mullenberg. In a sermon delivered to his Virginia congregation on January 21st, 1776, he preached verse by verse from Ecclesiastes 3, the passage which speaks of a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. Arriving at verse 8, he declares that there is a time of war and a time of peace. Mullenberg noted that this surely was not the time of peace. This was the time of war. Concluding with a prayer and while standing in full view of the congregation, he removed his clerical robes to reveal that beneath them he was wearing the uniform of an officer in the Continental Army. He marched to the back of the church, ordered the drum to beat for recruits, and nearly 300 men joined him, becoming the 8th Virginia Brigade. John Peter Mullenberg finished the revolution as a major general, having been at Valley Forge and having participated in the battles of Brandywine, Germantown, Monmouth, Stony Point, and Yorktown. Another minister leader in the revolution was the Reverend James Caldwell. His actions during one battle inspired a painting showing him standing with a stack of hymn books in his arms while engaged in the midst of a fierce battle against the British outside a battered Presbyterian church. During the battle, the Americans had developed a serious problem. They had run out of wadding for their guns, which was just as serious as having no ammunition. Reverend Caldwell recognized the perfect solution, ran inside the church and returned with a stack of Watts hymnals, one of the strongest doctrinal hymnals of the Christian faith. Isaac Watts authored, O God, our help in ages past, joy to the world, Jesus shall reign, and several other classic hymns. Distributing the Watts hymnals among the soldiers served two purposes. First, its pages would provide the needed wadding. Second, the use of the hymnal carried a symbolic message. Reverend Caldwell took that hymn book, the source of great doctrine and spiritual truth, raised it up in the air and shouted to the Americans, Give them Watts, boys. The spiritual emphasis manifested so often by the Americans during the Revolution caused one crown-appointed British governor to write to Great Britain complaining that if you ask an American who is his master, he'll tell you he has none, and he has no governor but Jesus Christ. Letters like this and sermons like those preached by the Reverend Peter Powers, titled Jesus Christ the King, gave rise to a sentiment that has been described as a motto of the American Revolution. Most Americans are unaware that the Revolution might have had mottos, but many wars do. In the Texas War of Independence, it was Remember the Alamo. And on the Union side in the Civil War, it was In God We Trust. In World War I, it was Remember the Lusitania. In World War II, it was Remember Pearl Harbor, etc. A motto of the American Revolution directed against the tyrant King George III and the theologically discredited doctrine of the divine right of kings, which asserted that when the king spoke, it was the voice of God speaking directly to the people, was simple and direct. No king but King Jesus. Another motto, first suggested by Benjamin Franklin and often repeated during the revolution, was similar in tone. 
Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Preserving American liberty depends first upon our understanding the foundations upon which this great country was built and then preserving the principles on which it was founded. Let's not let the purpose for which we were established be forgotten. The founding fathers have passed us a torch. Let's not let it go out. One of the great concerns of the founding fathers during the establishment of this nation was the judiciary. They were concerned that it would become out of control and that unelected officials, judges, would enact law contrary to the will of the people. We see much the very same thing happening in the United States Supreme Court today. But it was not always that way. I'd like to read to you from some of the rulings of the Supreme Court in years past. The Supreme Court was ordained and established in 1789 by the Judiciary Act of Congress. Originally had six judges. It's been expanded to nine. In 1844, in the case of Vidal versus Girard's executors, there was a man by the name of Girard, Stephen Girard from France, who was a dentist that came to Philadelphia, made a fortune, died and left it in an estate over $7 million dollars which in 1844 would have been a huge sum of money. He wanted there to be established a school and an orphanage with a stipulation that no religious influence be allowed. The lawyers for the city of Philadelphia declared that the plan of education proposed is anti-Christian and therefore repugnant to the law. The purest principles of morality are to be taught. Where are they to be found? Whoever searches for them must go to the source from which a Christian man derives his faith, which is the Bible. There's an obligation to teach what the Bible alone can teach, which is a pure system of morality. Both in the Old and New Testaments, religious instruction is, uh, the importance of religious instruction is recognized. In the Old, it's said, thou shalt diligently teach them to thy children. In the New, suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. No fault can be found with Gerard for wishing a marble college to bear his name forever. But it is not valuable unless it has a fragrance of Christianity about it. The Supreme Court ruled, Christianity is not to be maliciously or openly reviled and blasphemed against to the annoyance of believers or the injury of the public. It is unnecessary for us, however, to consider the establishment of a school or college for the propagation of deism or any other form of infidelity. Why may not the Bible, and especially the New Testament, without note or comment, be read and taught as a divine revelation in the school? Its general precepts expounded, its evidence is explained, and its glorious principles of morality inculcated. Where can the purest principles of morality be learned so clearly or so perfectly as from the New Testament? It is also said, and truly, that the Christian religion is part of the common law of Pennsylvania. Can you imagine a court ruling like that today? In 1892, in the case of the Church of the Holy Trinity versus the United States, the Supreme Court ruled, our laws and our institutions must necessarily be based upon and embody the teachings of the Redeemer of mankind. This is a Supreme Court ruling. 
is impossible that it should be otherwise. And in this sense and to this extent, our civilization and our institutions are emphatically Christian. No purpose of action against religion can be imputed to any legislation, state or national, because this is a religious people. This is historically true. From the discovery of this continent to the present hour, there is a single voice making this affirmation. The ruling goes on to to quote many of the uh, reliances of state charters upon the Bible and Christianity. It mentions uh, the last phrase of the Declaration of Independence where they pledged their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor, and so forth. And it says there is no dissonance in these... uh, Well, um, let me back up, excuse me. We find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. Because of a general recognition of this truth, that we are a Christian nation, the question has seldom been presented to the courts. There is no dissonance in all these declarations. There is a universal language pervading them all, having one meaning. They affirm and reaffirm that this is a religious nation. These are not individual sayings, declarations of private persons. They are organic utterances, and they speak the voice of the entire people. They quote some other uh, Supreme Court rulings, other cases, as a basis for their um, opinion. It is also said and truly that the Christian religion is a part of the common law. If we pass beyond these matters to a view of American life as expressed by its laws, its businesses, its customs, and its society, we find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. Among other matters, note the following. The form of oath universally prevailing, concluding with an appeal to the Almighty. The custom of opening sessions of all deliberate bodies and most conventions with prayer. The prefatory words of all wills in the name of God, amen. The laws respecting the observance of the Sabbath with the general cessation of all secular business and the closing of courts, legislatures, and other similar public assemblies on that day. The churches and church organizations which abound in every city, town, and hamlet. The multitude of charitable organizations existing everywhere under Christian auspices. The gigantic missionary associations with general support and aiming to establish Christian missions in every quarter of the globe. These and other matters which might be noticed at a volume of unofficial declarations to the mass of organic utterance that this is a Christian nation, we find everywhere a clear recognition of the same truth. In 1931, the case of United States versus McIntosh, the court's decision included the phrase or the paragraph, we are a Christian people according to one another, the equal right of religious freedom, And acknowledge with reverence the duty of obedience to the will of God. Supreme Court ruling on the will of God. In 1952, in the case of Zorak versus Claussen, there was an issue regarding separation of church and state. Supreme Court ruled this. The First Amendment, however, does not say that in every respect there shall be a separation of church and state. Rather, it studiously defines the matter the specific ways in which there shall be no concert or union or dependency one on the other. This is the common sense of the matter. Otherwise, the state and religion would be aliens to each other, hostile, suspicious, and even unfriendly. Municipalities would not be permitted to render police or fire protection to religious groups. 
Policemen who help parishioners into their places of worship would violate the Constitution. Prayers in our legislative halls, the appeals to the Almighty and the messages of the chief executive. Remember when that was the case. The proclamation making Thanksgiving Day a holiday. So help me God in our courtroom oaths. These and all other references to the Almighty that run through our laws, our public rituals, our ceremonies, would be flouting the First Amendment. A fastidious atheist or agnostic could even object to the supplication from which the court opens each session. God save the United States and this honorable court. We are a religious people, and our institutions presuppose a supreme being. When the state encourages religious instruction or cooperates with the religious authorities, by adjusting the schedule of public events to sectarian needs, it follows the best of our traditions. For it then respects the religious nature of our people and accommodates the public service to their spiritual needs. To hold that it may not would be to find in the Constitution a requirement that the government show a callous indifference to religious groups. That would be preferring those who believe in no religion over those who do believe. We find no constitutional requirement makes it necessary for government to be hostile to religion and to throw its weight against the efforts to widen the scope of religious influence. The government must remain neutral when it comes to competition between sects, meaning denominations or churches. We cannot read into the Bill of Rights such a philosophy of hostility to religion. In 1963, in the case of the school district of Abington Township versus Shemp, the Supreme Court ruling included, secularism is unconstitutional, preferring those who do not believe over those who do believe. It is the duty of government to deter no-belief religions. Facilities of government cannot offend religious principles. In the case of Lynch versus Donnelly in 1985, the Supreme Court ruling included, there is an unbroken history of official acknowledgement by all three branches of government of the role of religion in American life. The Constitution does not require a complete separation of church and state. It affirmatively mandates accommodation, not merely tolerance of all religion, all religions, and forbids hostility toward any. In 1985, in the case of Wallace versus Jaffrey, the ruling included these words. It is impossible to build sound constitutional doctrine upon a mistaken understanding of constitutional history. The establishment cause, clause has been expressly freighted with Jefferson's misleading metaphor for nearly 40 years. There is simply no historical foundation for the proposition the framers intended to build a wall of separation between church and state. The recent court decisions are in no way based on either the language or the intent of the framers. Unfortunately, since 1985, there's no rulings to read to you that are consistent with the above. Because the court has become exactly what many of the framers, particularly Thomas Jefferson, was concerned that it would become. It seems to me that you've got to be either willfully ignorant or just dead asleep 
to fail to see that our country is under assault. On every hand. From the decision by the executive branch to not enforce border security to the willful turning of the eye to what the ISIS group is doing worldwide and the immigration situation that creates the same issues here. To the state takeover of healthcare system. To the open hostility against Christianity. And the favoritism of Islam. That's taking place in our country. America is under assault. We've got an important year. This is an important year. We've got a very important election coming up in a few months. And for me, it's not so much a, a choice of lesser evils. I believe that the Bible shows us clearly that in the last days there will be a one world government which will be the platform for the Antichrist to appear. I believe as, a, as Christians, we have every responsibility and a duty to do everything we can to halt that. It would seem that we have two presumptive presidential candidates. One we don't know a lot about, one we know everything about. I don't know what Mr. Trump will do, but I do know what Mrs. Clinton will do. Now, we can debate whether or not Mrs. Clinton is evil herself, which I believe she is. Or if she's just such a political animal that she'll do and say anything to benefit herself you know it's interesting to me that if you look at the history of the country many of the people that were on the side of evil thought they were on God's side the colonies who rebelled against King George III King George thought he was God's man so I think some of those debates are unprofitable even though we may be convinced as to what we believe and what we think about the situation. I, I certainly am. But the debate is not important. What is important is which direction is the, is the country going and the world going? And how does that fit in with what God's told us to do? I have a responsibility to try to do everything I can to stop evil. I believe every Christian does. We could also debate whether or not our actions will be enough to stop the evil. I don't have an answer for that. I hope that should the church rise up 
can stop what is the obvious progression of evil. That God would be turning back the clock to give us a little bit more time. That may or may not be the case. I don't know and I don't have anything from God on it. But it doesn't absolve us of a responsibility. I often wonder what would the founding fathers do if they were here now. It's easy to say and suspect that we might have another another revolution if they were. But then that, for me, that draws into question. We know for certain that in their day it was a time for war. Is it in our day? I don't have an answer for that either. We do know what the thing's going to end up to be. We just don't know if it's in our time that it ends that way. There is a march toward a one world government. There is an open willingness on the behalf of too many Americans to be ignorant of the truth. I sometimes wonder if maybe the best strategy for the church would be to get Kim Kardashian saved. Because it seems that more people listen to her than people that actually have good sense. I can't help but remember or reflect back to the signing of the Declaration of Independence. On one hand, from our perspective, we see the great good that it brought, the years of blessings upon a free and uh, a free and united people, which we used to be. But the signers saw it in a different way. They knew it was important. They knew it was necessary. But they also knew that they were sacrificing everything to put their names on that paper. Without a doubt, America has lost that sense and willingness to sacrifice for that which is right and that which is good. Somebody called the World War II generation the greatest generation. They were certainly the last generation that were willing to make a sacrifice for the good of the world. Nowadays, nobody's willing to sacrifice to lose a cell phone. And they want somebody else to pay the bill. I want to encourage you in a couple of ways. First of all, I think it's important that we honor John Adams' intent and his words when it comes to the 4th of July. I think we need to recognize it as a religious holiday. These were acts of God 
working through and upon men that change the world. And we need to recognize that the blessing of God was on this nation. There's a a saying that goes around in the Christian community that, that really bugs me. One is, as Israel goes, so goes America. Or America is blessed because we've been a blessing to Israel. And they go back to what God told Abraham. I'll bless them that bless you and curse them that curse you. Folks, that doesn't fit today. America is blessed because it founded the country on Christian principles. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm all for Israel. I want America to do everything that we can to benefit Israel. I consider Israel to be our number one ally in the world. And were I in charge, I'd do everything possible to protect Israel and provide for them. But America is not blessed because we blessed Israel. America is blessed because we founded the nation on the godly principles, specifically the word of God. And the further and further we get away from that, the further and further we'll get away from those blessings that we've had from the earliest times. The second thing I want to encourage you to do is remember the signers. We owe them a great debt. They were men that were willing to be used of God. And most lost everything. Very few came through the Revolutionary War with their lives. None with their properties. Most lost their families, their possessions, everything they had. We owe them a great debt. It would have been so easy to take the position that many did, most did, in their day. And that is to agree with the principles, to agree that America should declare independence, but be unwilling to make waves against Great Britain. We owe the signers a great debt. But most importantly, we need to keep our eyes on the real prize. And that is that Jesus is coming soon. Until he comes, we've got a work to do. Which means more and more, the further we go, we're going to be standing against the tide. The tide of society. The tide of sin. The willingness of society to call evil good and to call good evil. The lawlessness, which according to the scripture will only increase. I have a real question about the modern day church. I believe that there will be a remnant who, in the spirit of the signers of the declaration, will be willing to stand up against evil no matter what the circumstance and no matter what the cost. I just wonder how big that remnant's going to be. Because it's so easy just to stay quiet. It's so easy just to sit back, not take action, not take a stand, not make waves. But remember what Jesus said. 
Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. He said, families will be divided over me. Jesus didn't go trying to use the sword. He didn't go trying to create offenses. But if you really believe in who we are in Christ and what the Bible says so clearly about the plan of God that's unfolding, you can't help but be different from the world. Jesus asked a question. He said, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? To look at the modern day church, that's a great question. So you're going to find church programs. So you're going to find church as usual. So you're going to find believers standing in faith based on the word of God as to who they are and how we should live. We've been given a great heritage in this nation. We've been given a greater spiritual heritage through the work of Jesus. Let us so live that we give honor to both. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to live in what was founded as a free nation. We see those freedoms eroding around us, Father. We see the advancement of the enemy. We know that you're not in heaven wringing your hands about the situation, Father. So we're not going to wring our hands. We're not going to be in fear. We're not going to be in worry. But instead we're going to be in faith. Trusting that you're greater than the work of the enemy. We thank you Father that the power that we have in the name of Jesus. The life of God that dwells within us. Protects us. And preserves us. We thank you Lord. For divine direction in these last days. Help us to be an influence for good around, upon those around us. That's all we're asking for, Lord. We're simply asking that you would help us, direct us, and guide us to reach one. That those around us would see the peace of God upon us. As the world increases in turmoil and fear. That the light of God's glory. That dwells within us. Would shine through. For all of mankind to see. We believe father. That the word is true. And because we do, we fully expect you to show yourself strong in these last days. We're not the church that's just trying to hold on till we can get out of here. We're the church that believes in the God of heaven and earth. The God that shows his power to be greater than the work of the enemy. 
to be greater than sickness and disease. To overcome in every circumstance, in every situation, no matter what men or governments may do. Lord Jesus, we ask that you would show yourself strong through your people. That the world may see and that the world may know there is a God in heaven who sent his son to the earth who died to make men free who died to make men righteous and who has shared his power with his people to bring others into his family that's our prayer father we ask that you would use us as you see fit Lord we commit our lives our fortunes and our sacred honor to you in the precious and holy name of Jesus no matter what it costs us no matter if it brings scorn or ridicule in these last days no matter if it brings persecution we pledge our lives to you we make our declaration of independence on this day for the remainder of our time on the earth in Jesus name if you can agree with that say amen Amen.